Our Bible reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 23, uh, from verses 26 to 56. And I'll be reading from the ESV tonight. And the scene is set at the crucifixion. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we have, are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sunlight failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion who saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, 
a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen, in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Welcome again to our Good Friday service. If you're visiting here or here for the first time, my name is Chris Cullen and it's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here and to have the opportunity to share a message with you today. This is not the first part of our Easter commemorations as we've spent time during the week. We've had Stations of the Cross where we've taken the opportunity to to spend some time and reflect. I'm holding an olive that I picked up as I did that. Who did the Stations of the Cross um, this time round? Quite a lot of people. And um, I I had the joy of being able on Wednesday afternoon and evening to talk to people as they'd gone through, after they'd gone through the Stations of the Cross and for everyone that I spoke to, there was a, a real sense of uh, a, a joy, if you like, but also a somberness uh, as they'd taken the time to reflect on what Christ had done. And we come to today, Good Friday, and we think about today as a day which is a a sobering time. It's odd, isn't it, that we call it Good Friday. Uh, People who are not churchgoers probably wonder what Christians are on about because from the outside looking in, Friday is the day that we remember the death of Jesus And we call that Good Friday and Sunday is the day when we remember the resurrection of Jesus and that's just Easter Sunday. Uh, Perhaps, you know, in the minds of those who are not part of the church, they would look at us and say, well, isn't Friday uh, a day for sadness and Sunday should be Good Sunday? In fact, we, we do this in our church services. Good Friday service is normally quiet and reflective. It's a time for us to consider that it was our sin, my sin and yours, which put Jesus on the cross. And then we come to Sunday and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And in our church this Sunday, we're having an Easter feast and It's all part of that sense of of victory that Jesus has conquered death, that he's alive again. So why is it that we call today 
Good Friday. I um, was chatting with Jonathan during the week. I said to him, I'm going to let everyone know that you've thrown me under the bus today. Because the title for today's message was set in, in, not set in stone, I I could change it if I wanted to, but, and if it felt to me that the text suggested it, but this title was set some time ago as the King's Victory. I'm like, Easter Sunday would be the day to preach the King's Victory, not today. As we look at the passage together, I hope that you might be reminded again, or perhaps for the first time, come to understand why today is Good Friday. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you've preserved for us in the Bible your message for us. Prepare our hearts and minds to hear what your Holy Spirit is speaking to us through it. And may today be a pivotal moment in the spiritual journey of each person here and of everyone who is watching online. To the praise and honour and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've been finishing our studies in the Gospel of Luke. As Jonathan's mentioned, we've been talking about this part of the Gospel of Luke as the way of the King. And we've seen a few weeks ago as we looked at Jesus engaged in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, that in a very real sense, the victory was won then as the the way of of the Saviour, as the way of the King was the way of submission to the will of his Father. It reminded me of a moment in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, at the very beginning of the movie where uh, Jesus is pictured in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and uh, the serpent comes out and Jesus steps on the head of the serpent. And we're reminded of the fact that way back in the book of Genesis that it was prophesied by God that the, the offspring of Eve, Jesus, would bruise the head of the serpent. And as we come to today's passage, uh, we have to look at the entirety of Scripture to understand the, the fullness of what takes place here because Scripture from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation all comes back to the moment of Jesus dying on the cross. And so we saw that in a a real sense, as Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, 
the victory was already won. And then last week, as Jonathan shared with us from Luke chapter 22, Jesus announces his coronation in verse 69 when he says, From now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And in the face of the guards, in the face of the elders and the rulers and the people, Jesus remains steadfast to his mission, resolute under pressure and silent to his accusers. In Jonathan's words last week, we celebrate a coronation. He, that's Jesus, climbed up the cross and he climbed on the throne. The victory was already won in the unfaltering obedience of Jesus to walk the way of the cross. And so we come to today's passage. It doesn't sound like a victory march. It it reads like a final defeat. Jesus is led away to be executed. He, He can't even carry his own cross, although we do know from John that he carried it for a way, but... Simon, a man from Cyrene, is forced to carry the cross of Jesus. Perhaps he was too exhausted from the flogging that he had received and the beatings. And as he walks towards his place of crucifixion, a multitude of people and women are wailing and weeping for him. And he is crucified between two criminals. The rulers scoff at him, the soldiers mock him, Even one of the criminals has a go at him. And as if to mock him even more, an unearthly darkness comes over the whole land for three hours and Jesus dies. His body is taken away and placed in a tomb. And this, apparently, is Good Friday. But we must understand how this fits into the whole gamut of the story of God and people as we find in the Bible. And to recognise that even here, in this narrative, we have not only the physical realm, but we have the spiritual realm. And at a spiritual level, A transaction is taking place of great momentous circumstance. Something that will never again occur and had never happened previously. So let's look at the passage with spiritual eyes. The multitudes of people and women were mourning and lamenting for him, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen? When it is dry. They're all mourning for Jesus. Poor Jesus. He's going to be crucified. 
And he turns their weeping back on themselves. Leon Morris, in his commentary on the book of Luke, says, at this moment, as he goes out to execution, Jesus thinks not of himself, but of them. He wants their repentance, not their sympathy. He is thinking with compassion of the doomed city and its inhabitants. Most people take this as a prophetic word of Jesus, which took place in AD 70 when Jerusalem was razed to the ground. And his words direct the women to the importance of looking beyond the present moment to the inevitable consequences of the nation's sins. In the physical realm, it seems like Jesus is in a dire situation. They're all mourning for him and weeping for him. But in the spiritual realm, he's alive. And they are dead in their sins and need to repent and turn to their saviour. Then as Jesus is raised up on the cross, verses 32, and following with criminals on either side, he speaks from the spiritual and prays for the forgiveness of those who had crucified him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And here Jesus is practicing what he's already preached earlier. He's already taught the the disciples and those who followed him that their own prayers are to ask for God's forgiveness as they themselves forgive others. In Luke 17, he taught the disciples to keep on forgiving, even if their brother sinned against them seven times in a day. And in Luke 6, Jesus said, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So as the enemies of Jesus attack him physically, Jesus understands their spiritual need and shows love to his enemies and prays for their forgiveness. Their mockery revolves around the sign posted above Jesus. Normally that was a sign which outlined the crimes of the criminal being executed. And in this case, the sign said, this is the king of the Jews. This question of Pilate to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews, was one of the only questions that brought a response from Jesus. He had answered, you say that I am. And Pilate, under pressure from the people, agrees to the crucifixion of Jesus. After all, you cannot have people starting an insurrection against Rome by claiming to be an alternate ruler. But again here, Pilate and the soldiers who mock Jesus for being called the king of the Jews, they're thinking in the physical. But the kingdom of Jesus is not a physical kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom in the hearts of those who acknowledge his kingship. And so we come to the interaction of the two criminals with Jesus. And and one has joined in the abuse, yelling insults at Jesus, but the other has a spiritual perception 
that is not shared by the crowds or the rulers or the soldiers or even his fellow criminal. This man recognises four realities, spiritual realities. First, he recognises that those who sin ought to fear God. Secondly, he acknowledges his own sinfulness and that his sentence of condemnation is just. Thirdly, he realises that Jesus has done nothing wrong. And finally, he recognises that Jesus is the king and that one day Jesus will come into his kingdom. Such insight from the lowly criminal as he hangs condemned. And Jesus rewards the faith of the criminal by making an incredible promise to him. And one, when you look at it from the physical, you think, here's Jesus hanging on a cross, he's about to die soon, and he's promising paradise to this man today. He says it in an emphatic way, um, or, or Luke's account has it quite emphatically. Truly I say to you, Jesus is wanting to emphasize what he's about to say to the criminal. Truly, this is a true statement that I'm giving you. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise here is the same word used to describe the Garden of Eden. It's the same word used in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, when Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus and promises, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The paradise of Eden, paradise lost, you might say, was where the start of the story of God's interaction with people and of human sin and redemption is told. And the paradise found in Revelation is promised to those who have been redeemed. And here, as Jesus hangs on a cross, he promises to the criminal who by faith has trusted in him that by faith he will receive that same day the opportunity the joy to be with Jesus in paradise. Spiritual truths in the midst of a terrible physical calamity. That there are spiritual realities at play here is emphasised by the darkness which now comes over the whole land. It lasts from about midday for three hours. And it's not a solar eclipse. The crucifixion of Jesus occurred at the time of the Jewish Passover. And the Passover was celebrated at the time of the full moon. And science tells us that you can't have a solar eclipse at the time of a full moon. You can look at that yourselves later. This is a supernatural darkness pointing to the awful and terrible event of Jesus, the sinless one, God the Son, dying an unjust death in order to take our sin on himself. 
Just think of the incredible spiritual transaction that is taking place here. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God effects in the death of Jesus a transaction of cosmic proportions where the sin, my sin and yours and the sin of the world is laid onto the sinless, righteous, perfect Son of God so that his righteousness might be available to us. We're told that the curtain of the temple tore in two, signifying that it's possible for us to come directly to God. And then Jesus commits his spirit into God's hands. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Finally, the body of Jesus is laid in the tomb. And here it is Joseph of Arimathea who is in focus and not Jesus himself for a moment. But Luke gives us a couple of little breadcrumbs to help us understand this also from a spiritual perspective. Luke describes Joseph as a good and righteous man, which is high praise indeed. But we also learn significantly that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. He understood that the kingdom of God is not a physical human kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. We're not told why he asked for the body of Jesus, but perhaps like Martha, when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, perhaps Joseph had an understanding and a belief in the resurrection at the last day. Or perhaps he was present on the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and heard those words of Jesus when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so here are the events of the day from a spiritual perspective. The King Jesus has won his victory. As our drama shared earlier, it is finished the work of Jesus is complete. There is no more to do to pay the penalty for our sin. And that, my friends, is very good. It's very good indeed. Hebrews chapter 12 says... You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, 
How does this apply to us? In a few short weeks, the coronation of King Charles III will take place in the UK. And for most of us, this might be an item of interest or perhaps curiosity, but it will have little bearing on our lives. While technically we live in a constitutional monarchy, Australia, for all intents and purposes, is a self-governing democracy. Charles has never fought any war on behalf of the citizens of his realm, nor would we expect that he will ever do so. His coronation does not present any particular change to our lives. Uh, perhaps with regards to his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, maybe she was held in such high regard and honour, partly because of her service in World War II. When, when she passed away, there were many stories about that. But even then, she was not the, the conquering queen leading her troops into battle. However, all the peoples of the Commonwealth and the US and their allies participated in the fruits of that victory. And as we think of Jesus the King, the King of the Kingdom of God, we are faced with a genuine question. In what way can the victory of Jesus be my victory? In what way can the victory of Jesus be your victory? If Jesus has triumphed over sin and death and hell and Satan, what difference does that make to me? Is it just a curiosity like the coming coronation of King Charles? Is it an item of interest, but something that has little bearing on your life? Are you loaded heavy with the burden of sin? Do you find yourself enslaved to it? Do you struggle with anxiety, concerned? for the eternal security of your soul? Do you feel the condemnation of the arrows of the devil piercing your heart? Do you feel an uneasiness within you? Because you do not know if it would ever be possible for someone like you to be saved? Do you struggle as the Apostle Paul with your sin, crying out, woe is me. The thing I want to do, I, I cannot do. And the good that I know that I ought to do, I do not do. if you share this weight of sin, then you will want to share in the victory of Jesus. You will want to participate in the fruit of redemption. You will want to feel the soothing balm of the Holy Spirit assuring you of your salvation 
and eternal security. You will want to come under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and be set free from the law of sin and death. You will want God to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that beats with his laws. You will want to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, performing a good work within you, making you more like Jesus. I look at the example of the repentant criminal who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I encourage you, I urge you, I, I entreat you. Cry out to him, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Remember me, Jesus. Remember me. And the criminal is promised, today you'll be with me in paradise. I, I don't know how it works in the physical and spiritual but somehow, on that very day, he was with Jesus in paradise. I don't think time in our physical world correlates with time in the spiritual, eternal world. And as Jesus promises to the criminal today, and as the crowds gathered around Jesus mocking and insulting him, uh, I think about another crowd that gathers around Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And I imagine at that moment when Jesus committed his life into the Father's hands and breathed his last, that around the throne in heaven, all of the redeemed, 
that we read of in Revelation 7 start to sing, worthy are you, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. We're going to sing a song, actually just a little snippet of a song. It's maybe unfamiliar to you. We'll sing it a few times. It's easy to catch on. You can remain seated as we start to sing. And when you feel comfortable to do so, I invite you to join in because I have this picture that as Jesus breathed his last, as his work was finished, that the chorus began in heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slain. <laughs> 